Um, was there any, was somebody else out there? Let's give him like another minute. We'll fire it up. Hey, Keith. I'm very upset about it. <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> okay. Uh, Keith, is your wife here? She's okay. I'll I'll wait for her, and then we'll get started. So don't hold me to this, okay? I'm going to say this before we have a complete room. That way, if I have to back away from it, uh, I have not lied to everybody. But uh, it's possible we'll be done early tonight. It's possible that we'll be done early tonight. You mean mean right at 8 o'clock? I mean like (laughs) 9.15. Earlier than what? (laughs) Again, an excellent question. (laughs) I, that's the surprise that comes in the end. <laughs> what time we actually leave, I'll say, well, at least we were early then, whatever that time is, plus five minutes. <laughs> Solid reasoning. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> whatever it takes that I've not, I've not given, a, given a falsehood. That, see, that's what I'm not, I really do most of the talking. <laughs> Our extended discussions are all because I'm blabbering on about something or else, not generally because there's a legit question. <laughs> Uh, your questions actually tend to f- hone it back down to where it should be. If left to my own devices, I'm likely just kind of talking about whatever comes to mind at any given time. Okay. Um, I'll tell you what's on the docket for tonight. Let's see, and we'll see if we can get this accomplished. So for the next two weeks, here's what I think I want to do. Um, this week, I want to try to look at some of the... We looked at some major text, right? Like we look at Matthew 24, and we've digested that. We looked at... Um, our primary rapture texts, and we digested that. Um, But what I don't want is we walk away feeling pretty comfortable, at least reasonable about where we've come from, and then we run into some random verses somewhere, and it throws us all into a a tizzy again. Okay, So here's what what I want to try to look at tonight, is I want to look at similar descriptions of what we looked at in Matthew 24 by Mark, which is Mark 13, and by Luke, which is going to happen in a combination between Luke 17 and Luke 21. And then we're going to look at John, except for i got a question mark by John, because John seems less concerned about all of this. I think there's a pretty good reason for that, but we'll look at what John has to say uh, on the similar things that we've been talking about through Matthew 24. Um, we need to hit 2 Peter 3. We talked about this the very first week, but we didn't kind of digest it. So in light of what we now know, I want to go back and read 2 Peter 3. And then I'm going to introduce 2 Thessalonians 2, which is where we get uh, phrases like man of lawlessness, or um, some of your Bibles might be son of perdition, um, and the Antichrist, or an Antichrist. So we will um, we'll kind of start talking about that. And I told you that um, I'm, I told you that I wanted to go through that one with you. So what we'll do is I will introduce this, and then we'll come back next week, and we'll kind of see what you guys may have found or what your thoughts are on that particular section. Yes? It's not really you going through it with us. That's you deciding <laughs> it to us. But I'm going to read it, too, during the week. Yeah. That's <laughs> a firm. you tell, sir. <laughs> I, t- I tell you, well, the veracity of that accusation will come back when I find out how many of you actually checked into it during the week and came back with something. Yes, you should. I was <laughs> <to> you <laughs> <the right. 
Okay, here's, I'll, t- I'll tell you on this one, I'm pretty confident that I'm not going to land on something firm here. Um, just, I, I looked through it last night without kind of digging too deep into it, but I kind of scanned through it so I knew what I was introducing and could give you some things that maybe to keep an eye on. Um, and I would say, based upon my initial reading of it, I'm probably not going to come back next week and say this is definitely the thing. Um, but I think we have some ability, based upon what we've read so far, to ground it perhaps differently than we traditionally ground it and open up a different set of options than maybe where we, where we generally go. Okay, so that'll be kind of our goal through Second Thessalonians. Um, also, what I want to do is that if we can end the night introducing that, we'll do that. And then um, the other thing I want you guys to be thinking about for our final week would be like what, what questions are still out, outstanding. And I, I grant that we have not like solved all into the world issues and we, have, we need to deal with Revelation and we will um, at a, kind of that separate time. Um, but based upon what we go through or have gone through up to this point, what things are kind of rolling around in your head? What are you thinking about? Um, what are your questions about what that means for what we do, what other people think, um, where we go from here, how we might digest Revelation, that kind of thing. And so we'll spend our, our last class period. If there's any more cleanup on these that I create this week, we'll do that. Um, otherwise, we'll talk in a little bit about Second Thessalonians 2, and um, we'll hand you your questions, and that'll kind of tie up our end of the world stuff. And then we'll just kind of, uh, I'll give you a few introductory ways on how to start approaching Revelation. And then I'll probably give you two or three months to kind of dabble in it in and out. And then we'll, um, to those, if you are interested, um, we'll start diving through Revelation and start trying to parse that out. That's kind of our lay of the land for the next, for our last two weeks. Okay. All right. So let's, um, let's start out with a quick just refresher of where we ended last week. We, got, we finally got through Mark 20 or, uh, Matthew 24, and we got in talking about rapture stuff. And um, I, I made this, this was in my definition of the rapture, but I'm, I'm going to say this out loud, perhaps a little clearer than I might have last week. When I say that no one was talking about the rapture prior to 1830, what I mean is the secret rapture that um, pre-dispensationalists or premillennialist belief systems would otherwise talk about. Because in reality, you could describe what, what I said I think happens, which is the church is taken up, um, the uh, people that aren't in the church are judged, the earth is refined, and then we return. Like, okay, you could realistically talk about that as a rapture, people being taken up off the earth. It's just we're defining where they end up afterwards okay traditionally people do not use it that way but there are some instances of like church fathers and some early church writers that when talking about that type of action right there may use the word rapture okay so i'm going to i just want to make that distinction that when i say no one's talking about it, it's not that you won't find people discussing or using a word rapture but they do not mean the church is taken up there is a time uh, a time of tribulation and then christ returns with the church to reign Okay, that's not what they mean by that. That description or use of the rapture, that's our 1830 going forward type of stuff. Okay, because um, there there is some very interesting things from church fathers that talk about that. They're just not talking about it in the same way. Um, and what I don't want you to do is again run into that. And there's something from like the 15th century, and like wrong, everything must be backwards. It's not quite. Okay, so uh, just a clarification on that. But we got through that, and there were some things that I said were a little bit troublesome about accepting the, the theology of the rapture, the God's people taken out, and then uh, seven years of tribulation, and then the return. What were some of the biblical things that I said cause us to potentially pause or shift our rapture thoughts into a maybe column? Do you guys remember any of the examples? Yeah, Noah. Yeah. What about Noah? 
he was left and everybody else was the non-Noah. Right, the not-Noah. Yeah, so one of our examples was, Jesus says, it will be like in the days of Noah, one will be taken, the other left. And we said, in the example of Noah, the not-Noah, or people that weren't of Noah's family, were the ones that were taken off the earth, and it was Noah that was left. And so if we say, one will be taken, one will be left, or the other left, to think of that as the rapture of the church, we have our orders mixed up. Our order doesn't seem right. Okay, what else? Uh, Explain further. Well, um, God was, took the Israelites out of the, um, Egypt, meaning they're not God's people. We're separating God's people from the rest of the other people. Okay, so, so I, that's interesting. I don't know that they're, I, I hadn't made that connection before. Um, he doesn't, Jesus doesn't give that as an example, but I suppose there's something about a typology about that that says a separation, the leaving of and the bringing out of God's people. Okay, okay. What else? What else we talk about? <laughs> Jesus, <key. laughs> just just wait it out and see what shows up. Um, in Matthew, yes, the weeds and the wheats. Yep, weeds and the weeds. Jesus references, or if we look at at that reference, um, and, and he's talking about the end of the age. And he says, who will be harvested first? What will be harvested first? The weeds. The weeds. Or, sorry, the, the, the weeds. weeds. The weeds will be harvested first, okay? And then the weeds. And so we have our, again, opposite again. Okay? We have our opposite again. So again, our, our order still isn't quite right. Okay? What was Matthew? Uh, it was Matthew, what was it? 13.24. 13.24. Yeah, it says, gather the weeds, let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. But the reason he said do that is because you don't know who's the full mature Christ follower until the end, when the time of the harvest, because the weeds and the grass look the same until that point. Correct, but the, but the order he gave, if we're looking at, if this is the end of the age, the order he gave was weeds first, then wheat, not wheat first, which would have been our rapture thought. The church would be taken out. Um, and, I, and we talked about that in the Schofield Reference Bible. He actually twists this, Cyrus Schofield does, and says, first, like he will gather the weeds to be burned, but first, or the weeds to be burned, but first, the wheats must be taken into the barn. And that is not what it says in Matthew. So like, that, that description in the Schofield Reference Bible is intentionally trying to get you to understand a reverse order of that because it supports this concept of the rapture that Cyrus Schofield otherwise believed and we said originated um, kind of in that 1830 time frame coming up. Okay? Uh, what else? There was something about 1 Thessalonians 4 that I said made this difficult to believe that it is a secret rapture. Oh, yeah, so what, what about 1 Thessalonians 4 um, made, me, made me say that uh, I, I'm, this is problematic for it being a secret rapture. You know the sound of the trumpet? Yeah. Yeah, 4.16 it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. It seems quarrelsome for a sneaking in, sneaking out type of rapture thing, right? That is, that is not 
evidence of something happening quietly in the night where someone will sneak in and sneak out. It seems to be a very loud, verifiable action, which we said mirrors what it talks about in Matthew 24 when it talks about Christ's second coming, is you will know. Lightning from the east to the west, there will be no doubt that he has returned for the second time. Um, And so it would be difficult to make the case, if this is our prime reason for saying there is a rapture, it's difficult to make that case as a secret rapture, given the general uh, unruliness and loudness of which Christ seems to go about his rapture business. Okay? Okay. So all of those things are things that I think we should be cautious about and should at least put our, uh, if we have a rapture thought, it should at least put it in the maybe column and most likely in a, it doesn't seem to be biblically tenable column. Okay? And the other thing that I said we need to be careful of is when we, this concept of the rapture is very, tends to be selfishly focused. It says when there is trouble, we will be taken out. And we won't have to be in the times of persecution. It seems like most New Testament literature is focused on the fact that we very well will be part of times of persecution. Um, All the the disciples died in persecution. The book of Revelation will focus on this, um, that persecution will come to the church. Um, This is something where where Jesus says, uh, if you want to keep your life, you will lose it. Um, this does seem to be something very much focused on the, not on the thought that when, when the trouble shows up, Christ's church does not have to take part in that. As a matter of fact, it, it seems that the, it is the, um, the seed of the church is the blood of the saints, right? Like where, where there is persecution, you find that the church grows. Where the church is pressed, where the church is starting to be marginalized, it tends to be where the gospel tends, shines through because you lose your peripheral benefits, of following Jesus, and it comes down to the brass tacks of is he who he is, and are you following him? Okay, so um, that was a quick review of last week. So let's now look at how some of these same situations are described in other gospels. Right? We got him. I think we got Matthew kind of firmed out. We've parsed him out. We've looked at him. Let's check some other places. So let's turn to Mark thirteen. So I'm going to read through this, um, and we will see, like, um, I don't know, just kind of keep track of this for a second, and see what jumps out, if anything jumps out of you about Mark's description of what seems to be like a similar situation, okay? Uh, Mark chapter 13, this is Jesus, uh, this is him foretelling the destruction of the temple. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So far, seems like the same thing. Okay? He's pronounced destruction of the temple. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all things are about to be accomplished? What's, what's missing from here that is in Matthew? Did anybody see it? He built it in three days. Uh, he says that earlier. He says, he says that earlier. We were kind of haggling over end, right? We were haggling over how he uses ends, teloses, and suntileus, right? In Mark's description of the same event, we don't have that indicator. We don't have an end here. Because in, in, in Matthew, they said, um, tell us when all these things will be accomplished the end of the age. Yes? Uh, verse 4. Syntelaeus What will be the what? Uh, verse 4. The word syntelaeus right there. For which one though? Uh, which word? That's a, it's in the Greek. 
And in thirteen four. Yep. So can you tell me what what are they translating it as then? I think they turn it into the word accomplished. Oh, okay. Hmm. Okay. Uh, well, never mind then. That is a non-distinction on my part. I'm going to erase it off the board so that my shame does not produce in front of everybody. Well, here's, here's a question. Like yes. I was going to ask you last week. They're asking him about it, but in the one passage it says, no one knows, not even the Son, only the Father. So they were they were asking Jesus when the end was going to be, but then the one passage says he doesn't even know. Right, so he said that, he said that after they asked the question. So that yeah, that was his response to I think when will the what will be the end of everything? Yeah. So that's what he's responding to. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, all right. So we do have an end. Thanks, Dave. Sutleon accomplished. Um, and Jesus began to say to them, "See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am He, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. There we have an end." For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. So far, pretty consistent narrative from Mark. Okay? But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children rise against parents, and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end, that's a telos, will be saved. So far, seems pretty consistent, okay? I haven't seen anything that should throw us off what we understand from Matthew. Uh, let's continue. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he not ought to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee on the mountains. Let the one who was on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days, for that may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord did not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And that if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have you told all things beforehand. Still so far so good? That he's a little interesting. The what? The he. So this has uh, the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. Now, if I, if I remember my Matthew right, I don't think that was a he. You have an it there? Yeah. Ah, see, interesting. That's interesting. If we look at... Um, so, so, so it's weird how they render that. It could be either one, right? So it's weird that they chose a he there because in Matthew it says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. It doesn't imply that it's a person. Um, but here they've, they've rendered it a he. But it sounds like it uh, could go either way, right? It could go either way. Yeah. Okay, let's call it a non-distinction, but it's interesting that it renders the he here to me. All right, so far though, uh, it looks like pretty consistent. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And they will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Again, still sounds like temple-focused, 
judgment on the temple. There's our kind of Old Testament judgment language of our heavens and earth. Um, and then send out his angelos or messengers and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also when you see these things take place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Again, I didn't see anything there that would kind of throw me off course. Um, it, that, that chapter ends, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man's going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So Mark kind of truncates his warning here. Um, Matthew spends, Matthew 25, um, is Jesus' kind of extended warnings of this stay awake concept, of this be prepared concept. Um, Jesus, it's truncated here in Mark and basically sums up in just that one little phrase at the end, or that one little story at the end, and then stay awake. So um, there's Mark. There's Mark generally speaking about the same things in Matthew. Like I said, I didn't see anything that would throw us off there that would make us understand it considerably differently. I would say, I don't know that Mark's language is as clear to me as it is in Matthew to show the distinction between when he's talking about the temple and when he's talking about the end of the age. For me, I'm not sure it is as clear as it transitions between uh, verse 31 and 32. It doesn't say that I think that distinction isn't still there. Um, and in the context of understanding Matthew, I actually think, it is, I think it's fine. But if I were only reading Mark, I'm not sure it is as clear. He doesn't, um, we don't get the same uh, Perusia and Erkamai distinction that we were talking about, the comings, um, where I think Matthew separates those out with that word. Um, I, it, it's just not as clear to me, if I'm being honest about how I read that. Yes? He does still include that hard shift. He does. He does. That but concerning is still there, though. A hard shift in topic is still there at the beginning. Um, so I think, it is, I think it's still there. I still think it's, a, obviously, I think it's the right reading of that text. But again, if I'm going to be honest with you, either it's, I think Matthew helps us with some, how he used some word distinctions that I don't think are as prevalent in Mark's text. Although Mark is much more succinct anyway. He, he's not spending as, much, as many words as Matthew tends to. Um, Mark is heading somewhere, and he very much uses um, short language and completely progresses his narrative to get where he wants to go. Because um, Mark is interesting. He, he spends... He spends um, sees a lot of immediately following. He's, you've seen this strict progression of Jesus constantly moving and moving through his narrative. Okay, so that's Mark. Any questions on Mark? I don't know, it seems like some waste of time because it's mostly the same thing, but I want to just make sure that we're looking at what Mark is providing. Let's look at Luke. Luke, uh, let's start in Luke 17 because he's, he's got these split up a little bit. Should we be concerned that Luke seems to touch on the things that Matthew touches on in a single chapter should we be concerned that Luke touches on a little bit in Luke 6:17, excuse me, and a little bit in Luke 21? Because like if Jesus said it all together and they're separate in Luke, should we have concerns about that? Well, in Luke is with interviewing eyewitness people. Maybe only this one eyewitness only had part of the story, and the other eyewitness had the other part. It's possible. It's possible. Dave. Uh, same process happens with uh, when. Jesus sends out the 12 disciples. Um, for Matthew, he takes it all as a single speech, but for Luke, he records it as two separate events where he sends out the 12 and then later on 
sends out the 72 disciples. For Matthew, he combines it all into a single speech. So it kind of follows the theme between the two authors. Uh, Luke tends to keep things back where they were chronologically, and Matthew organizes things topically. So one of the things that we need to do, and we talk about this kind of at the very beginning, but we need to make sure that we are coming with the appropriate expectations of what we're reading. Um, they are, each of these guys is trying to um, relay a narrative, and they will be, dis- they will choose what they tell and what they don't tell. Everyone, I mean, everyone tells a story that way, but they're going, that doesn't mean that they're hiding something or that what they're saying is not true. It just means they're trying to point to a specific thing or they're trying to say a specific thing. They are not um, news reporters. They're not journalists, okay? Um, nor do they care to be. Um, a lot of the information in that, um, in that day, especially the Jews are just far less concerned about writing a historical linear account than we are. That's what we're used to reading. We want historical, linear accounts. Things happen in a specific order. Uh, if you're a Jew, you're thinking cyclically. You expect things to come back. You expect God to act in a similar way as he has before. You recognize that type of pattern of things showing up. Okay? So as we, as we read through these things, sometimes we say, well, Luke has done this with the text. It sounds like there was a, a main proper text, a timeline, of which then Luke picks from and kind of drops is where he wants to, and that Matthew picks from and drops where he wants to. And the truth is, is that there isn't a master narrative somewhere. Things probably did happen in a, there, things did happen in a specific order, right? But they are also trying to tell a specific story. And so they will move things around. Um, as a matter of fact, the Sermon on the Mount was not likely all said at one time. It's probably a combination of a bunch of things that Jesus has said, okay? So um, this isn't something that should give us pause, but I think it, it rattles our minds a little bit if we're looking at it from our own expectation of a current journalist narrative of we want a historical written account, we want exact times, we want exact numbers, we want exact locations, and they simply don't do that. Sometimes there's, there's uh, three guys in one gospel and there's two guys in another. Does it mean either of them are wrong? Not necessarily. It could have been three, but maybe some, he's using two for a reason. He's focusing on those two guys. In between Mark and Matthew, as a matter of fact, uh, Matthew says the disciples asked, when will these happen? When will be the end of the age? Mark says what? A few of them asked him privately, that there were four that asked him privately. Now, does that mean that is Matthew wrong? Not necessarily. His description of disciples asking him could be those four guys asking him privately. Okay? There's, there's the things that seem to be um, counter to each other aren't necessarily that way. You just have to understand there's this, this Holy Spirit inspired, but there are still, these people are writing with a specific aim, and they don't see this as a problem. We find it as a problem because of how we read things. Our enlightenment, this is introduced in kind of the enlightenment. We have this expectation of historical record that they just, they simply didn't have. Okay, they didn't have that same expectation of it. Okay? All right. Uh, Luke 17. Let's look at uh, Luke 17, starting in verse 20. It says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for the behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. This fits with our understanding that the kingdom of God is not established, but it is establishing. Okay? It is not something, there are many times where we can say the kingdom of God is establishing. We said Christ's coming. Uh, Revelation seems to imply that there is a specific impact at, at, at Christ's event, at him being born, at his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and then ultimately, I would generally say our end of, our end of the establishing of the kingdom, short of his return, would have been the destruction of the temple. Okay, But yeah, this is establishing. 
Um, and then he says, said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. So there we have our kind of firm reiteration of, you will know when this happens. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot. So he adds, there's a different distinction, right? He gives another example in the days of Lot. They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. In, in, what's that? That still weeds first. Yes. Yeah, that still weeds first. Or who, or who stays and who goes? Mm-hmm. Who stays? Lot stays. Everyone else is destroyed. So again, okay, for the rapture to be true, we've got these backwards. Lot, Lot doesn't stay in the city, but he stays on the earth. Oh, okay. Right? So, that, so they are destroyed. The rest of Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed, and Lot remains. So they leave the earth, Lot stays. Okay? Same, same distinction as Noah. All right. Um, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken and on the other left. There will be two women grinding together, one will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now see, he used that in kind of a different place. That was interesting. I was reading, by the way, a commentary from, from um, John Nelson Darby yesterday. And when he, when he translates this verse, or when he uses his comment, talks about these verses, he actually says eagle here. I don't like to, like, again, that is of less importance, but it's just interesting to me, is that uh, he's a primary rapture guy, and um, his rendering of this otherwise would be eagle. So interesting. Okay, so that was our, that was our Luke 17. So he's got an additional example in there. Um, let's look at Luke 21. Okay, Um, right here after the widow's offering, Luke 21, starting in verse 5. It said, while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you and deliver you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate before and not answer, for I'll give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Ah, these are days of 
vengeance seems to make sense with our judgment language, right? That we see the Old Testament vengeance, judgment uh, against Babylon, against Egypt, who God has used to otherwise try to strain and redirect his people back to him. He ultimately takes vengeance upon, and he seems to be using kind of that same thought process here. This, they, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he ends with the lesson of the fig tree. So when did it change from temple to mm-hmm. second coming language here? In Luke 21. Yeah. So I so it looks to me like this didn't, is. Didn't we say the sun and moon and stars and whatever was a throwback to the Old Testament? And we said that's that's totally temple. That can still be. Temple. That's still judgment on the temple. Yep. That twenty-seven seems to be it. So when they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory, but we said Son of Man coming refers to what? What what section of scripture? Daniel 7. Yeah, Daniel 7. Sleep. We need index cards. Daniel 7. Daniel 7. Okay? So, and that is Daniel 7, Son of Man coming on the clouds refers to what? Coming on. Like, it's, a, it's a kingdom. Establishment of his kingdom. He ends up on the right hand of the Father. Right? And his kingdom is establishing. Okay? So I do not think this means Son of Man coming. We said our problem with Daniel 7 was he's coming from where to where? He's going from from earth to heaven. So Son of Man coming can't be His second return. Who's the they then? We're at. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud. Who's the they? So I think, I think that is to imply those who's the, who the judgment was upon. So basically, they, I think it is, is against the Jews and they will recognize the Son of Man coming, which is that Jesus was who He said He was because of the destruction that comes upon them. So I think that's, that's what it is to me. Is that through, through the judgment of the temple, and this is the time when Jesus' kingdom is being established or continues establishing, that they will then, they will see that. And they will, may not all react to it, but like, that's when basically that is coming to fruition. So it's not a see with your eyes, it's an awareness. They will understand, yes. Yes. Understand. Correct. Like, I wouldn't expect that there, there wasn't a physical event where you saw him right. um, coming Although, oh sure, yeah, yeah, no, it's it it is very it is yes, I and and maybe if I haven't said this clearly before, um, I'm certainly not denigrating the understanding of where we've come from, right? Um, because I think we we had to we had to work for this to understand it. We had to bring in the right perspectives to understand where we were at to where we're going to and how this works. Um, if you read it without those contexts, it's not it's it's not a right reading. But it doesn't mean that it's not a natural reading, how you would take it, because we don't have those contexts. So we have to get those contexts correctly, and then we see them right. Yes, absolutely agreed. Which means, if, we ha- if you're having this conversation, and frankly, I, have, I see no reason to provoke it, unless people are causing trouble. But like, um, if you're having this conversation with somebody, like, just remember w- w- how I would have read it. I, I remember how I would have read it and say, oh man, that's, that's interesting, check this out. Let's look and see how God talks about that in the Old Testament. Let's understand the, the historical things that went around it. And then I can have a conversation that says, Let, we're searching for truth together because we said, I want the Bible to be able to change me. And, that's, and, and in this study particularly, it has done that. 
It has changed how I understand these things by digging deeper on it. But we certainly shouldn't be coming with the perspective is that uh, oh, we're crazy knowledgeable and someone else isn't. Like it's a, I understand absolutely where it came from. Definitely. Definitely. In the Greek, one of the actual translations is to see what the mind or to perceive. Oh, right. Okay. So, so we're legitimately can, can understand this to understand as opposed to visually take in. Yep. Okay. Are you saying that was the Greek for understand? I, I think that is a C as in, yeah, to perceive. Yeah, the Greek to, what the heck was it now? Um, they will see. Is, there's a few different, one of them is to see with the mind, one's to see with the eyes, and then one is to become acquainted with by experience or to experience. So I think, I think that's how I would, that's how I would expect that to be to understood. Because if we were to see it, then that, that does become a little bit quarrelsome with some of the language he's otherwise produced. I, I think it makes most sense, Son of Man coming, to be still a kingdom moment um, and that they, are understanding, that they are understanding that based upon the things that are happening around it. Because the truth is, is that he's been completely vindicated. Has he not? Like at the t- all these things Jesus is saying that they're mocking him for, that he is being arrested for, that he's ultimately killed for. We said it's that temple accusation that flows through, right? Those are the things that he is, that they are the most upset about and that ultimately gets him killed. And at the time the temple is destroyed, Jesus is completely vindicated. He is, even if they didn't buy the resurrection, the temple is destroyed. And so everything that he said is vindicated kind of in this moment. And so would it, would it make sense that this is a time of which they perhaps have an understanding that they did not have before? I think potentially. I think that is, that is potentially what we're looking at there. Okay. That's Luke. There's... There's some interesting things in Luke and Mark both that I would say um, maybe we probably have to spend some more time on. Like we really parsed Matthew. But, but even coming from where we came in Matthew, I think I can read parts of Luke and I'm like, okay. It, 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 I don't know. I'm trying to think the right way to put this. It doesn't shake my ground a little bit, but I have to rethink it again. right? I have to go through the same process I went through through Matthew to understand what they're saying in Luke um, because th- there are some differences. And so we have to look at them again. Okay? I don't think there's anything outlandish here. I don't think there's anything that changes our understanding of Matthew. Um, but there, there are certainly distinctions that we need to be aware of if we're going to talk about these things in, in, a, in a wise way. Okay, that was Luke 21. So John, so John is interesting. So I was looking through John because John would have, an, would have a... Um, his insight is different. There's a, there's a lot about John that is different from the rest of the Gospels. And so it'd be interesting to see John's kind of take on this section of information um, that everyone else is trying to communicate. Do anybody know when John was written? Anybody have any idea? I think, it's, I think it's around here. I think John's around 90 or so. There's various datings of John. Um, as a matter of fact, I think popular wisdom... Uh, or scholarship today would put Revelation as a pre-80-70. I don't think that's right. I actually think Revelation is, is, is here too. I think it's around 90. Why would, why would John write in the Gospel or in Revelation, or any of the others for that matter, after the temple has been destroyed, why would they not make mention of the very essence of their society, both theologically and sociologically? So the question is who John is writing to. Mm-hmm. Right is who he's trying to communicate to um, as to whether this remains something that he 
that he cares about. Because I suppose if, if, if our dating of John is right, if we're, if we're right about John 90, it would make sense if we've said predominantly that we think this language of uh, destruction and things are centered around the end of the temple, the temple being destroyed. This seems to be something it would make sense that he's not talking a lot about because it would have already occurred. Right? And there's no reason if it was supposed to be the end of everything then I feel like he should be talking about it more in his gospel. He would care more about it. But you see none of that language translate. Like none of the things that I would say are parallel between Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 17, Luke 21, they are not in John. They're not in John. He seems to not give a flying wick about the temple, except for when it comes as part of Jesus running into the Pharisees. Okay, it's not like he didn't continue stories, but I did a, just did a search of the, of the Greek word for temple or for temple in the book of John, and you, you can't find the same types of discussions that he's going into here. Um, and so it's an interesting question, John, about why, because um, what I want, what I want John to say is, see, see what Jesus said about the destruction of the temple? Now it's done. Um, that's what I want John to say. He doesn't seem to say that. Um, and that is an interesting question as to why not. But I suppose if you're 20 years out, and John's talking to people that have fled from that. It is something that that audience doesn't need a reaffirmation for. That we, because we've, we've got levels of, well, we're not sure what this means. We're not sure if we're understanding it correctly. We want that affirmation from John that that's what occurred. But those people would have known. Um, so it's, it's one thought as to perhaps why. Um, but it was, it was interesting looking through John. If this is the perspective that he's on, if he's writing 20 years after this has happened, it would make sense to me that he carries almost none of that language here because we said most of it applies um, to the destruction of the temple. And so it's just not a relevant discussion for him anymore. He's kind of moved on to other things. As a matter of fact, what you tend to see a lot more in John... You see a lot of Holy Spirit show up. You see a lot more discussion in times of where um, he's looking beyond his existence on earth, whereas he points to in Matthew, Mark, Luke is talking about the destruction of the temple. In John, what you find Jesus talking about is him sending somebody. You see a lot, of, a lot more Holy Spirit talking John, which again, I think makes sense. If our understanding so far is correct, that would make sense to me because he's still pointing to um, what it looks like to live beyond him. But the people that, he's, that are listening are people that where the temple information is not as relevant to them, um, but the Holy Spirit very much is relevant to them. Okay? Questions about John? So who was he talking to? Who did he? Was it, I've got a note here from, I think it was Vernon McGee or something. It says he's talking to the Orient or... Yeah, so he's got a... He's got church in Asia Minor. So he's, he's got, um, so he, w- he went to Ephesus. Um, he lived in Ephesus and it, um, they think with um, Jesus' mother, so Mary, that they lived together in Ephesus for a while. As a matter of fact, did you go? Did you go to the church there? I have not been to Ephesus. Okay. But did you go? Yeah. Okay, sweet. Do, so like, there's a place, like there was a, there's a church in Ephesus um, that is like extremely old. Um, that they think, you know, like there might have been some involvement and stuff with some of those guys in that area. But Ephesus kind of became, uh, Paul, Paul ends up kind of going out from, um, from Antioch. And then you see John and Mary and some of those folks end up in Ephesus. And so you have kind of a, a launching from there. And so um, I would expect, or, or I have an, have an assumption, that his audience um, tends to be like those folks in Asia Minor, kind of in that area, um, similar to the churches of which the Rev- Revelation is written to kind of in, in, that, in that realm, um, so just a little bit farther east um, of where, um, say, Jerusalem and stuff was. 
So they were so they were Gentile, not not immersed in Jewish culture, correct? Not really? Well, so like he's, they started churches there. So I don't know that it would be fair to say like they're completely, they're not like Paul Gentiles where Paul's like going in the realms of no one has any idea. Um, Was the temple just not mean that much to them just because they're not, they're not steeped Jews? Well, I think it's, it's, it's far less relevant, right? Like it's just, just far less relevant to them. Like if it's gone, it's gone. Um, by that time, if he's writing in, in 80, 90, Matthew seems to have made the case already, right? So was Mark. It's not like these things weren't available. It appears very much so that Paul has access to um, the Olivet Discourse because he um, has written otherwise in Matthew and Mark. And so like this information seems to be getting around. And so John doesn't have much of a reason to make a case that Matthew, Mark, and Luke have already made. And so I, you don't see him doing that. What it's, it, I don't remember the, the thing. It's like 80%. Is it more than that of John is unique? It might, it might even be more than that. So, like, John, a lot of what John is writing is unique, which makes a lot of sense if he's a kind of a 90 AD guy because, like, there's all these things that are available. And he doesn't seem to be, like, clarifying mistakes that someone has made. He seems to be talking about either a lot broader, either higher or deeper discussions than other people are having and kind of tying things together. And that's what I think you see happening in both um, the book of John. You find it in some of his letters, and then I actually think you find that in Revelation too. I think all that, all that stuff kind of ties together. And so um, I, I think it, if, it, if it is a mix of like Gentiles and Jews, I think they just don't, they've moved on, right? Like Jesus is, is vindicated. The temple is destroyed. They don't need to talk about it. Like it's done. <laughs> it's time to move on to other things. And frankly, they got their own things going on um, to talk about. So actually, I think that's what it is. It's the conversation has moved on. If you move the writing of John to earlier, which some people do, that becomes a much more interesting conversation to me. Like if you put John prior to the destruction of the temple, then I think it's actually pretty weird that he's not still talking about this. I would have expected a lot more from him talking about that. Um, but if it sits where I think it sits, then I actually think it makes a lot more sense. Okay. Any questions there? Okay. All right. Um, I would say it's not that there aren't other passing references, but I think those are our big ones. Those are our big ones talking about the same things that we got through in Matthew 24 um, that would give us the same general understanding, the same information that we would expect to see across the Gospels. Um, and I didn't see anything that otherwise causes a significant amount of trouble. All right. Let's look at Second Peter 3. It's pretty close to the back, if you're looking. There it is. Okay. How are we doing? Right. We're going to be all right. All right. Second Peter 3. Excuse me. Um, here we're talking to, we'll, we'll just fire up the, this, um, this whole of chapter 3. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Is that, is that unique to their time? No. no. No, I feel like you could legitimately hear that today. Where's this Jesus? The end, like, how many guys you got to see on a street corner with a sign who says the end is coming and you're like, 
we've been waiting. Yeah, I think this is legitimate. Uh, the thing that Peter's writing here makes sense even today. And it's interesting, they didn't even wait that long, right? Like they, they, this amount of time, like we're a couple thousand years in, they're 30. Um, what, Peter died in, uh, what, 60? 68, maybe? So like, I mean, you're talking no more than 38 years. He would have died before the temple was destroyed. All right, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with the roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Is there anything in there that causes us a problem? From our understanding of Matthew 24? Well, the part about the Lord will come like a thief makes it sound like it will be quiet. What makes it think that's a, that's a, that's a noise? That's a, like a noise thing? Because that's what thieves are known for. No, thieves are quiet and sneaky. So, what? Yeah, so, he, it's, this isn't the first time he uses that, that reference, right? Like a thief in the night. Let's go back to, let's look at Matthew 24 again. If this is the one that I'm looking for. The thief doesn't want to be heard. So that assumes that he's stealing. Oh, you know what? It's not Matthew 24 that I want. Um, we talked about it this week. We talked about it this week. It's Matthew. Um, hold on. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Ah, all right. So let's let's read Matthew twelve. Um, so I think the answer is that he's not talking about sneaking. I don't think he's talking about being quiet and sneaking. He's talking about coming when you're not prepared. A thief would come when you're not home, when you're not ready, when you're not watching. Okay, which seems would tie in with our understanding of stay ready, be watching. Um, and if we, if we look at, this isn't quite the one I was looking for, but in Matthew 12, we, t- this, we talked about this um, at church on Sunday. Um, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, and the kingdom of God has come upon you, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So I think, uh, that's, not, that's not quite the, quite the reference that I wanted. Um, I'm trying to f- think the sound of the thief doesn't matter if you're not home. Yeah, so I think he is, when he talks about coming like a thief in the night, he seems to be referring to the fact that he will come when you're not prepared, not that he will come quietly, 
right? Because, because everything else has seemed to imply that he will come noisily and that it will not be like a, like a thief in the manner of he's tiptoeing around your house. It's that um, you, will not, you are not prepared for a thief because if you knew you were going to be robbed, you would go home and man the place. You would prepare for a person that was going to steal from your house. Or the one reference was about the master. Yep. He even says that because he says, "Oh, when you least expect me, it's when I'll be, I'll be there." Yeah, exactly. And I'm aware of somewhere in the Bible. Yeah, so, yeah, that, and that's what I was looking for. It, it's a matter of expectation, not a matter of how he's doing it, but that it's going to happen, and that you need to be prepared. So I think that's that's where our thief reference is, is from. Right. Same concept, right? Okay, okay. Yeah, so that's what I think it is. Now, back to, back to what April was talking about, though. Um, again, do you see that there are pieces of a puzzle here that can get us to a secret rapture? Because we, we, we see thief, we say, okay, thief sneaking, okay, secret. He will come in secret. We have our First um, Thessalonians 4, where people are kind of coming up and meeting him. Like, are there puzzle pieces that could come together that make it seem like that makes sense? Sure. Well, that verse that we just read about two will, two will lie in one bed and one will stay and one will go. Mm-hmm. I've heard people say that it's going to happen at the nighttime. I'm like a thief in the nighttime and be, be alert in the nighttime. And... So I think, it's, I think it's taking the phrase too literal. Right. I think. I think. It's a very arrogant American thought process that yeah. it's night just because you're there. Right? The other world. It would be day somewhere, which means right. Jesus is lying. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> And I suppose it, uh, it was it was interesting. Um, what was I reading the other day? It had to do with how other cultures read the Bible and the things that um, people from other backgrounds or other nationalities will pick out and is very important to them in Scripture that we would have missed completely. Um, it was the story of the prodigal son. Okay, so so he goes away. We, we, he treats his father poorly. He gets his inheritance, basically says, treats his dad as if he's died, because that's when you get the inheritance. So you're as good as dead, dad. Give me my half. Leaves, spins it wildly, and then there's a famine at which he has nothing to eat and says, I will go home. The thing that um, the Russians land on is the famine. Like they focus, like we, we bypass that as like a, a inconsequential detail. Okay, that's okay. He's hungry. He's going to go home. He needs to live a better life with his dad. His dad will take care of him. But like they really latch on to how much of in the straits this guy was because he, there was a famine because that's where their experience comes from. It's difficult for some societies who were um, uh, who were enslaved or who have a background of being enslaved, like they look at. This, the Exodus narrative, way different than we do. Okay? This, this coming liberation, we look at it as like, how could God have taken out all the Canaanites? And how could God have cleared all this land to liberate his people? And there's, there's, there's a lot of our discussion in society goes like, I don't understand how God could do that. It's not fair to do these to all these people that live in this land. But for some people that come with a background that says that have been under the, the foot of a, of a dictator or of an oppressive society, 
Like that story looks way more redemptive than how we read it because we're not coming for that background. And so one of the things that, um, that I've been thinking about lately is I'd really like to start reading some Bible study material from people in other cultures because one of the things that we got caught in and where a lot of our rapture theology comes from is because we're reading things too narrow. Like we can only see them the way we th- see them. It, it's our bed. It's our nighttime. It's our trouble that we're being taken out of from, right? And so can we open up our mind to say Christians live everywhere? And so what, how are they reading these types of things um, in their other cultures? Uh, another, this is far less applicable than the first two examples, but one of the things is um, you can go some places in Africa and when, when they take communion, they drink tomato juice because fruit of the vine means that the grapes don't mean anything to them, right? So what's, fruit, what's the fruit that grows on the vine? Tomatoes. So they, they drink tomato juice. And there's, um, there's a, in India, there's a snake is a delicacy. So like there's a story where Jesus is saying if we, your kid wanted a um, what was it? Bread? Would you give him a snake or a stone? Right. What was it? And so, like, they're like, "Well, we'll take the snake. <laughs> that sounds delicious." You know, why would Jesus? <laughs> why didn't he just give us the snake? That's what we wanted. So it's it's interesting to think of things in that way. And I think we really should be careful to make sure we don't get into a spot where we are thinking so narrowly, as if God's people don't live in Africa, and God's people don't live in Asia, and they don't live in Russia. You know what I'm saying? Like, and we, we can miss that. That comes back to the context. Who were these letters written to? Who are the people that are initially reading this? Which is where, that's where culture is a big thing. And, and like Dave pointed out, in our, we don't live, I don't live with my brother, right? I don't live with my mom, I don't live with my grandparents. And so a house being divided doesn't, isn't awful to me. I don't think of it in the same way because I thought, well, I mean, my, no one lives with me. <laughs> All right. So, but when you say brother against brother, like you're talking about close knit communal families, that's a much bigger deal. And so understanding that context, yes, right. I would agree. I would agree. Understanding the, boy, I had a, I had this thing like three days ago. I thought, what would it, what wouldn't, would Jesus just let me just go to the first century just for like 10 minutes? If I could see how people were interacting with each other and I could walk around a little bit and see husbands treating their wives. Because I'm relying on other people who say they know about the time. And like some people come up with different interpretations of what goes on and how people were treated and what these things mean and don't mean. And I thought, boy, it'd be such a cool thing just for 10 minutes to walk around in that society. And I don't need to see, a, I don't need to see the church in Ephesus. I don't need to see Golgotha, right? I just want to see people. And see where people are walking to and what they're doing and who they're talking to and how they're talking with each other. Because I feel like that is, that is a lot of what we're missing. The, the people, uh, the, our gospel writers have captured information, but without being able to understand that culture, I'm afraid there's always something that I might digest incorrectly and really run with it because I know what I know, but I don't know what they know. And I, I don't know, the, I, I don't think, don't hear me say that, that God has put us at a disadvantage because we don't know those things, but I think there's a level of arrogance that says, my perspective is then poured into this so that I can read it the way I want to read it. That, that I think, is where we have to be careful. Um, so there's just, I don't know, there's something really interesting to me about thinking how other people are studying the Bible and how, what they see, what we see as a problem, what they don't have a problem with at all, and what they have a problem with that we're like, well, it doesn't seem like a big deal to us, simply because of where our perspectives are at. I do think there probably is something about how we're, we're supposed to relate as a church that we're supposed to fight for a communal perspective. Like, can I understand how, how people are understanding these things, where they're coming from? And I think it makes Scripture not different, but deeper. And so I think, I don't know, it just sounds like a cool opportunity to me for us to be able to kind of digest that a little bit differently. Okay. Um, interesting thing in Second Peter 3, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. Um, what did I miss this? 
Where's my hours? Where'd it go? Eight. Oh, oh, I started too. Yeah, I started too late. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Do we think that's literal or not literal? Should I, if God says something's going to take 10 days or 40 days, should I realistically think that is to be equal to something else? Well, the Jews speaking 10, 40, 12, those are real big numbers. Agreed. Agreed. So, so one of the things that you'll find a lot of, a lot of times in the prophetic circles is this, this is a fact. Okay, so that if God says it's X days, then it's got to be X days times 1,000 years. Like that is, must be a translation. Like we were supposed to use this as a mathematical equation. Um, well, can it mean that time is really not relevant? That, I think, is probably the right way to, to read it, is to say that, that this is more of a, a figurative thing than it is a, a way for us to keep a calendar. Yeah, thousand hills and preach the gospel a thousand generations. Yep. Um, Several places. He uses probably ten times throughout the Bible. If you're right, a thousand is a good example, yeah. If you take take it literally, it doesn't really make much sense. That's actually that's that's one of the best ones. So if we say that God is the owner of cattle on a thousand hills, who owns the cattle on hill a thousand one? Right. So we have a thousand not meaning these belong to God and these belong to Stan. Yes, yes, it's everything, right? So can I can I look at this and say with the, that with the Lord one day is as is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day? I think we should be careful about making it a mathematical equation. Okay, I don't think it reads like that. Um, we should be careful about using that to otherwise prove one thing or the other. And one thing I was going to tell you about when it comes to prophecy, do you read that thing I posted on Facebook about the guy, <laughs> like all the oh my god, holy cats, right? People are nuts. So so. The thing that I thought was interesting about that, and this is the same thing when they were, um, when Harold Camping was trying to say that the, when the end of the world was going to be and when the rapture was going to take place, is they use word counts. Like you're counting words, you're stringing numbers together, you're, you're like attaching a bunch of different things that don't connect, very much John Nelson Darby style. Oh, yeah. Okay? Um, and the thing is, some of them are relying on our printing methods. Like you seen guys with like Bible codes, the secret Bible codes, and you're like counting words in, and you're like shifting paragraphs around, and you're like, our understanding of translation. If we're not, if we don't take away anything from this class, please let it be that translation is an art, not a science. Which means that you're not going to find a hidden code in someone else's art. Don't make sense? Okay. So like I can, I, I, you can read something like that, and you're like, boy, that guy spent a lot of time putting something together that some other man also wrote <laughs> and tried to understand. And so do I think it is, it is rational for us to have conversations about how, what do these words mean and how, how do these stories connect in God's grand narrative? Can we have good discussions about people that disagree in that plane? Absolutely. Can we have a guy who's counting words and columns and stuff based upon our modern, modern printing materials? No. No, that is not a conversation that we're going to have and there's not a conversation that I'm going to entertain. Well, anybody could do that. I mean, with any crazy yeah. idea they come up with, yeah. Dissect, yeah. you know, paragraphs and everything, and decide they have a code. Exactly. Look how many words are in here. This is a giant book. <laughs> it's a giant book. I feel like you could figure something out. If you wanted to say something, you could figure out a way to say it. You can do it with any book. Yep. Not just. Yeah, right. Not just the Bible. There's, you could easily piece your stuff together. That's, how, that's why guys can cut out, you will sleep with the fishes from the Vogue magazine. Like, you want to sleep with the fishes, you can find that in there somewhere and paste it on a board and send it to a guy. Well, <laughs> opens his discussion with that. He came up with this phrase, and, you, and it's all in the Bible. And I forget what the phrase was. He, that one that you videotaped up in Anguity. 
uh, oh yeah, yeah. There's um, if, like you can even string realistic Bible phrases together. Like um, uh, Judas went and hanged himself, uh, and what you what you go and go yeah go and do likewise, and what you do do quickly. Okay, I mean, is that yes? All those things exist in the Bible. Those are from three different areas. If you just string those together, does that mean yes? We're in. <laughs> So you, you got to be careful about that kind of stuff. And even the stuff we're talking about, like when we're checking, when we go back to check that uh, Job reference and stuff, like you got to make sure that's legitimate. Like just because it's the same word, we, we got to be reasonable certain. Is God talking about the same things? Does it make sense that those things are connected? Because um, that's where actually people get into a lot of danger is connecting things that don't make any sense to be connected. But generally they have their own aim. They're trying to prove something and they're looking for the Bible to prove it. And remember, we started our class with the exact opposite. We said, the Bible has something to say and I want to hear it. And I want it to change me, and we'll start there. Okay. Um, so, yeah, don't take that as, um, as, as a straight equation. I, and just hold that true for everything, okay? So, like, anytime you see numbers in the Bible, they're, they're not trying to do an equation. Okay? It doesn't mean it can't be a literal number, but I wouldn't start there. I wouldn't necessarily start there. Okay. Good. Questions on Second Peter 3? All right. Let's do it. Let's look at Second Thessalonians 2. What does it say? At the, does anybody have uh, in your Bible, does it give a heading of chapter 2? The man of lawlessness. That sounds like a real slick character to deal with. Okay. All right. Let's, um, let's read this one. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. What, what do the Thessalonians think may have already happened? Yeah, they think Christ may have already returned. Yeah, they might have missed it. Which is interesting. Like the, the warning from 2 Peter 3 was, uh, or, or Paul from 1 Thessalonians 4 was, don't be concerned, the dead will be fine. Okay? In 2 Thessalonians, it's don't be concerned, the day of the Lord hasn't, he hasn't returned yet. Don't be fooled. Um, Second Peter 3 is, their people will be scoffing about when Christ returns, and how do you live today? In faithfulness. God will, take, God will handle it. Okay? Um, so he says, uh, Letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The son of destruction. Um, the word also could be son of perdition, which is the same phrase that is attached to Judas who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming." The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Okay, so there's some wild stuff in there. What sticks out? I feel like my man of lawlessness sticks out to me. I'm like, who is this Johnny B. Bad? 
He's not Satan. No, he is not Satan. Is he capitalized in your Bible? No. Man of Lawless? Anybody? Okay. Mine neither. He's capitalized in Revelation. Um, or this, this same type of character. Um, but that's, I, I don't know that you have to make a direct connection there. All right, so what else? What else sticks out? Uh, verse 11 is a little troubling. Yeah. God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Why did they have to be... Why do they have to be sent a delusion? They're already delusional. It's a good question. It's a good question. Am I, am I reading that right? No, yeah, no, yeah. Yeah, I think we've read it correctly. Yeah. At a certain point, you'll give them over to their... Is that more of a handover? Yeah, so, so it would seem to be... Well, first of all, is it within God's realm that he might do that? That he might say, I'm, I'm kind of done with you. Um, you're, I'm going to help you progress on to where you belong. It's, yeah, it seems to have a place for that. It seems to be his prerogative to the, do that if he wishes. Um, there's something interesting about this, actually, because you see a very similar thing when it comes to the parables. Remember, he's telling the parables, and, and Jesus says something to the extent of, um, so, so that the blind cannot see. Like, he's, I'm telling them in parables so that they may not understand. And we, so what we say is parables, it's a short story with like a, like a little story with a big point so that everyone may understand. But the truth is, is Jesus says, I say things in parables because there will be people that won't get them. Like he did to Pharaoh. Like he did to Pharaoh. So there seems to be this, this process from God where he says, I know who you are and I'm going to further that path. For those that, that chose to be blind, you will remain blind. Uh, you will not see any further. I will, we will say parables and the people that are open-hearted and want to come to me, they will understand. And the people that don't, they will confound you and you will have no idea. Yes? Textually, it looks like it could represent both an individual and an institution. What's that? Uh, the man of lawlessness. could be both an individual and an institution. I agree. could be either one. Yeah. I agree. I think that is, so, and that's kind of the point of this discussion. Uh, and John's brought up a good point here. Is What I want you to do is read this and not lock things down. Be open to what some of these things could be. Um, and, and John's point's a good one. Does it, does it have to be a guy? A man of, does man of lawlessness have to be a guy? I, I mean, I kind of like it because it's a man of lawlessness, right? But don't lock anything down yet. Like, take the whole thing in. And let's, let's read it further. Let me ask you this question. Are there anything about this, is there anything about this package, passage excuse me, in 2 Thessalonians 2 that seems to ring at least vaguely familiar from what we read in Matthew 24. Yeah, yeah, look, look, look at the description. Um, he, the warning is not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed um, by information that says one thing or another has happened. Let no one deceive you for that day will not come until the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself. And then you have, what? Proclaiming himself to be God, um, warnings about the types of things that are going on, false signs and wonders, wicked deception. Okay? I'm not saying there has to be a connection here, but what, when I was reading through this last night, this one of the things that stuck out to me is like, I think we have some things that sound a little bit familiar. Be wary of false signs and wonders. Right? I, I, there's a little bit of a connection there. And um, Dan nailed it. 
is there also something is coming. The thing that you're concerned about is not going to take place. Something big will happen. Like you will, there will be something that otherwise points this out. Okay? So I think there's a connection there. Anything else? Why verse 8 is a Jesus Christ. So I'm glad you brought that up, Dan. I'm glad you brought that up. Someone, um, you may have your Blue Letter Bible app up. Can you look in verse 8? And I want to see what word they're using that translates as Jesus. Kyrios. I did know that. But his name's not in there. No, it just says the Lord. Ah. So this is the word. You see this in, uh, in Acts when Paul's, um, Saul's blinded. And he looks up and he says, and he uses the phrase Lord. It's, this could be, um, it doesn't necessarily mean like Lord of all. Okay? It could be like Sir, Sir, Sir Jesus. Okay? I, I think this is divine. I think he is meaning Lord. But I am not certain that this is Jesus. I don't know that it has to be Jesus. It may or may not matter where we finally end up with this passage, but I want you to know that the word Lord, that Jesus, Jesus' name is not in the Greek. The third, the third point says this title is given to God, the Messiah. So there are other times where that word is used to just be a guy, like a man that they're familiar with. Yes. Well, it even says like the Roman emperor. Yeah, could be, could be curious. Yeah. Because they call them lords. Yes. Right? Yeah. So again, I'm not implying that you think one thing or another about that, but it's just something, something that I think is out there is that. This could be, it doesn't have to be Jesus. Could it be God? Could it be somebody else? Yes. In context, I think it's probably in the God area. I'm not sure, though, that it's Jesus. Well, and we put a lot of emphasis on the, the capital L, but that, again, that's not in Greek, right? Correct. Correct. That may, yeah. Yeah. So we have to start in context and say, who could they be talking about? Now, it does say... Um, actually, that's what's interesting about the man of lawlessness. Sometimes we want to make this as like a distinct entity, man over lawlessness. But like, those, they're not capitalized, or at least in most renderings, they're not. Um, so when it says, and the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Now, does that sound like a God-type character? Yeah. Could it certainly be Jesus? Absolutely. I'm not saying it's not, but what I'm saying is the name in there. Okay, so does it change potentially how I read that? If, if, I, if that's God and not Jesus, does it cast just something slightly different about that? I think it's maybe. That's one of the things I'm kind of toying in my head with is like, if it's not Jesus, does this change how I read that a little bit? Maybe, maybe, maybe not. So there's something to think about. Well, the counter to that is in Revelation, Jesus fighting the battle. Is that the same word that's been used there? Or? Well, you know what's interesting? In Revelation 1, the description of Jesus is the same description of God in Daniel 7, where it says he's coming, like they're talking about the Asian of days, and he's got, he's got this like hair white like wool. There's three or four description points of God. Um, and then if you look in Revelation 1, that's actually how Jesus is described at the start of Revelation. So it's actually, there are some interesting ties to those two things. Um, I don't know. Here's, here's what I'm thinking with this, with this uh, not Jesus name in there. If it's Lord, let's say I say it's God and not Jesus. Does it give me, a, if I'm looking at the other context that surrounds, does this have to be related to Jesus' coming or can it otherwise be uh, a judgment item from God? Who seems, who seems to be the guy sitting in, like Jesus condemns the temple, but like the language seems to center around God as kind of the judge. Um, 
Maybe. So, I suppose, I don't know that the context give me any right to pull this out of theirs. I don't know, I don't know that the, and that, so that's one of our other questions is a lot of times when, you, when you're talking about man of lawlessness, well, we tend to think, like, there's been plenty of guys, Mussolini, Hitler, right? Plenty of guys who we try to say, oh, this is, this is, this is him. I don't know that I have a lot here that makes me do that. Do I have to say that it's in the future? Could this be something that happens to them that he's encouraging them about? Because we made the mistake, I think, in Matthew 24 of seeing some of that language and having to pull it up in the future. I wonder if we run that same risk here that we automatically put this guy in the future that has to be something that occurs far outside of, of them. So it could be even smaller for the, the community of Thessalonica, something that happened that got interfered with and stopped. Uh, it's, it could get a bad role government and... It's possible. I think it's possible. Let me... Um, something that's Caesar. Yeah, so there's, there's guesses that it is. Could be Nero, uh, could be Domitian, like R- Roman emperors. Um, here. Oh, we're already. Well, what about six? What does it say? And you know when it's restraining him. Yeah. Okay. And then seven. He, only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. Okay. So there it's a it. Uh, yes. Oh, is it the same? Could it be the same thing here, it? Okay. Eric says we don't get caught up on that stuff. Yeah, don't hang your head on pronouns. Okay, trust. If Herrick's wrong, we're all wrong. We're going down with the ship. Okay. So, is there anything that says, so restraining, is there anything about restraining that says it has to be in the future? I'm not saying it's not, but I don't know that it is. Go ahead. It's the Holy Spirit that's restraining it, isn't it? Is it? I don't know. I don't know that it is. I don't know that there's anything that tells that in this that tells me it has to be the Holy Spirit that's restraining, but I also don't know there's anything that tells me that it's not. Why does it feel like it beckons back to binding the strong man and then, and then Satan being bound with Jesus yes. yes. It's, it sounds like that, right? Like it's got, it's got some vibes to it. That is, no, I know. I'm with you. No, I'm with you. There's dirty darkness bound up somewhere, dude. Okay. So if that's the case, when was Satan bound? Jesus came to the crucifixion. Yeah, Jesus is the Christ event. Uh, birth, death, resurrection, ascension. I think Satan's bound. Okay? Okay? So, okay, could sit in that context. So let's, a couple things we want to think of. First of all, let's, I'm not going to throw out the possibility that this is future. So far, every time where traditionally we say things are future, I feel like it's come back to sit pretty close to within their time frame. Okay? But I'm not going to throw it out. Let's say future is a possibility. Could be some sort of uh, man of lawlessness restraining Big things happen. Okay, um, let's let's say there's a, we think there's some sort of uh, Satan bind type of vibe going on in here. Yeah. Okay. Anything else? There's, go ahead. Or government. Okay. Could be some sort of government action. You know what's interesting? Go ahead. Is it talking about a person? Restraining it from their own heart. 
Okay, it could be a more of an individual thing. Okay. What else? Anything else? There's not a wrong answer up here, right? That's the point of kind of going through this. Well, like a like an adjective following the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Son of destruction. So we've got destruction in there. And then we're gonna clarify it even further. Who opposes opposes and exalts himself against every so-called god or object of worship. Okay, okay. And he's taken a seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. See, seems to be some sort of character who, or institution or something that has elevated itself above God. Money. Himself, itself, its greed. Money. Okay, okay. I'm going to throw, throw another one up here that I want you to just put on your list of potential thought processes. Something smacks the temple here to me. Something, something to me has, has just, a, just sniffs of our temple problems. You have something, you're waiting on something big. Every time we were waiting on something big, it was a destruction of the temple. You have, the day will not come until the rebellion comes first. What do we have but a re- rebellion of the Jews against Rome, but also against Christ? Um, if I look at um, people who they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved... Um, it seems like people who have the possibility to know the truth but are refusing it sounds a little bit like Jewish people to me. Okay, so I'm just, there's a little bit of a temple vibe for me. I, I don't know how I reconcile that with this man of lawlessness stuff yet, um, but just I'll throw it out there as a potential vibe. Okay, but what about the very beginning? Okay, hit me. Verse one. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yep. Now concerning. Should we pay attention to that? Now concerning, this is what we're going to talk about now. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yep, I'm with you so far. We're being gathered together with him. Yes. We ask you to not be quickly shaken. Yep. Does our mean, is that one of the pronouns we have to ignore? Because our seems to emphasize that uh, you're already under a belief. No, yeah, so he's writing to the church in Thessalonica, right? So like our would seem to make sense. So hold on to the temple would be weird. Yeah. How, how, right, but but um, but that section isn't necessarily talking about them holding onto the temple. It's pointing to the signs before they are gathered, right? Like in the context of being gathered together to Him, we ask you not be quickly shaken in mind, for that day will come will not come unless the rebellion comes first. Not that you will be part of the rebellion, but there will be a rebellion, right? Unless the rebellion comes first, who's the rebellion? The man of Wallace, the, the, the son of destruction. Son of destruction. Yep. Hmm. Takes a seat at the temple. Isn't that how, how the, the? Hey, what's the Greek word for temple? Is it Naos? Is it? Is that what they're using? Is there a difference between the temple and temple? and a temple? Yeah. Let's take. I think it's. I think this is it. I think it's Naos. That right there. Use of the temple at Jerusalem, but only uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. The holy place. Hmm. Holy of holies. I mean, you kind of basically said that John didn't bring this thing up because the temple wasn't that important anymore. 
This, this is, so this is before. So this is Second Thessalonians. So this would have been prior. Prior to John? Yeah. Is that John? Yeah. So Second Thessalonians uh, is probably like 50. 80, 50, 80, 55, something. Yep. Yep. Yeah, uh, don't hear me. that Because I wrote it, I expect you to give it credence. But what I'm saying is I just... There's, That's the same reason I'm arguing against it. I think there's a whiff of it. There's, there's a whiff in there somewhere. Okay? <laughs> um, something... I have, I have to say that this is like... Uh, more in-depth than looking at Matthew. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So what, one of the things that we've talked about in... Um, that we talked about in Matthew that we haven't, we don't really have here is a historical perspective, right? Like we could validate some of the things that were going on around to understand the perception of what might be going on here. I, we don't have that. Um, I don't know that we have a lot to go off from what, what Paul is specifically talking about here. That might help provide us a little bit of perspective. Um, it's, it's interesting to me, though, if we look at... Um, Where does this man of lawlessness come from? Is this something that would have been said... That's where I'm at, yeah. It's, it is a Hebrew idiom. Like the son of perdition is a, is a Hebrew idiom. Um, Somebody's walking down the street and they're going to say, you know, we, we call big corporation creeps and uh, robbers and all those kinds. Is this something that walking down the street and... Right. Like what we call the, you know, the we're talking crooks of Wall like, Street. That they son say of lawlessness. Yeah. They're like, they've got picket signs. So... I don't think so. They, they don't, um, this isn't a common phrase in any other literature outside of the Bible. So like, it'll say, if you look it up, it's like a Hebrew idiom, but there's not, it's not like they see it consistently through things that are extra biblical that this phrase is being used. So he does say that. So I think there is a Paul bucket of which you're like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. He seems to think it's going to help, right? And what's interesting is he said... Um, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? That that uses means it's continuing. Like he's continued to say these things. So this seems to be a conversation Paul is used to having. But it doesn't bring up all that much. He brings it up here. But it's not like it permeates every letter that he's written. Oh, and he's totally writing it like there's no explanation needed. Like, like that, yeah. you know what it is, right? And no other New Testament writer seems to have brought this up. Yeah. So, so one of the things that I would consider then is that he doesn't seem to hammer this over and over again, right? He brings it up as if something they could understand and reminding them would be helpful. And so there might be, there's a, probably a portion of me that says, I, this may not be for me. This may not be for me to be concerned about and act like I have to figure it out, given how Paul seems to treat it. Yeah, but the words to us are like striking. We've got lawlessness. We've got bound. We've got Satan. Yep. We've got Jesus in there. I mean, it just, it just reeks of, yay, Jesus is here. <laughs> it was, so, so actually, that's a good, it's a good perspective, though. Take it from a broad, take it from broad. I don't know any specifics. What does this communicate to me about Christ? He's coming. He's coming, and, and the dark side loses. Yeah. That's all we need to know. Things, things will come. I'm not sure that's all we need to know. However, it is something we can know. Right? Like, regardless of what the details are here, can I know that there are things that are opposing God, God allows them to prevail, brings them to fruition, and then takes them out with his breath? Yeah. 
Yeah, God is sovereign. He does what he wants. He's all powerful. Anything, these things that we might be concerned about, rebellions and whatnot, will be vanquished. Okay, so I can, I can learn something about Christ in this, even if I don't know the details. So, I think we can start there, and we can understand that. Um, you know what's interesting is, um, he says, uh, the Lord will kill with the breath of his mouth. Do you guys ever see Jesus fighting with anything else but his words? Anywhere? Doesn't, doesn't Revelation speak of something and he slays them with the word? Yeah, with the, the double-edged sword. Double-edged sword, which is our his yeah, words. words. Yeah. Jesus never fights with anything else but truth, with the things that he's speaking. And they are, they are what they are, and they will divide on its own. They will kill and pass judgment and bring life all on its own. Um, even <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting how we, we, we sometimes look at some of these things and where Jesus is simply handling, we, we think we've got to settle things with violence or we've got to settle things with skirmishes or physical confrontations. And Christ is simply delving out things with the power of his word. Like the earth is created with words. Okay? It's, he is vanquishing enemies with words. I told you about the, the battle in Revelation. Right? There is no fight. He's, they simply show up and they're destroyed because God says so. Words are powerful like that. Which means we have to treat our words carefully on how we use them and that we're communicating his message cleanly. But um, just know that like, his kingdom never fights like that. His kingdom never fights with violence. It just doesn't. Which should actually just be clear as day from a creation standpoint. He spoke it into being. Mm-hmm. He breathed yeah. alive. Why can't he destroy it? Mm-hmm. He, he is alive. He can. You know what I mean? So yeah. It, it shouldn't be something that it, needs to be... It fits with our understanding. Sometimes we try to further his ends with physical means when he seems not interested in that at all. Well, we want it. Yeah. We want it. Yeah. We want the Lord of the Pharisees, too. Right? What's that? Well, when they brought the lady and father and adultery to his feet, he ignored him. He just started doodling in dirt. <laughs> he started drawing around. <laughs> you think out of sheer boredom, he just took to the dirt? Uh, <laughs> well, I've done a couple sermons on that verse. It's interesting. <laughs> We've jumped up and said something or do something and he did something. <laughs> I thought there was a big mystery out there that he wrote something very true and they were taking it back. Over. Well, I thought about what he said. Yeah. I'm over. <laughs> I'm five minutes over. Well, not, wait, technically not. Technically not, I started five minutes late. All right, I'm going to send you off with two other things and then we're, th- this, this is what we're looking at this week. Okay? Yeah, Second Thessalonians. I'm not. Here's what I'm, I'm giving. It's okay to do. It's okay to see what other people think about Second Thessalonians, but please, but digest it with how you know to read the Bible. Okay, filter it out with how you know. Like so, when someone takes a right turn, I need you to recognize it. One other thing I wanted to point out in this section: um, they were concerned about what specifically that people were deceived that what had happened. Rapture. The Lord had already come. His second return. Okay? They did not think that there was something else that had to happen before Christ could return. That's what they were concerned about. This concept of, of uh, the rapture in a seven-year uh, time period and whatever didn't seem to be something they believed in. They thought Christ might have already come back. So again, back to kind of a rapture suspect, it's hard to hold the thought process that there could be rapture, seven-year tribulation, when the people that are there in that day are concerned they might have missed it not because they were waiting on something else, but because they thought that Christ could have flat out just returned. There was nothing holding him back from coming back. That's why this still just screams. <laughs> <laughs> it's on the board. It's, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping it viable, April. It's viable. All right. Think through that. Check into that this week. See if you can come to something that makes any semblance of sense.
I was planning on you going 20 minutes over, so five minutes over seems early to me. Just, just saying. Vindicated. <laughs> All right. <laughs> That's for next week. Hey, if you guys have questions, stuff that you're burning on your mind, you want us to answer before next week, get it to me before then so I have time to check it. Have a good night.